as of snow showers, lows, uh, 10 to 15 miles per hour. I mean, yeah, low, lows in 10 to 15 degrees. Uh, coming up next is uh, Sabrina Artel with Trailer Talk. Stay tuned. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Welcome to the 28th annual MCS Martin Luther King Day March. Yes, yes. The 8th grade students have worked incredibly hard this year. When we were talking in November about what they felt the march should be about, they talked a lot about the idea of misconceptions, and they feel like a lot of social justice issues are very much connected to misconceptions about race or gender or sexuality, and so we really wanted to address those. So they came up with this theme, and they found a, a quote from Dr. King where he said the unarmed truth will ultimately bring us peace. And so they felt like that idea of unarming the truth and looking beyond the misconceptions to the truth would really help us to move forward in terms of any different civil rights issues they were really passionate about. So they're going to be speaking today on a variety of issues from the prison system to the intersection of gender and race to Islamophobia. And they've, they've been really working hard and they have incredibly thoughtful speeches. So I'm really excited. So many of you came out on this very cold day to support them. We have a, a guest who's here, Council Member Helen Rosenthal, who is the council member for this neighborhood, so for our school next year. And she wanted to just, she wanted to welcome us. So, so let's give her a big round of applause. All right, thank you. I love the quote that you guys are gonna be speaking about, but I wanna talk about one other, and that is the fierce urgency of now. The fierce urgency of now, which is what MLK wrote about when he was thinking about voting rights. When everyone said, we can wait, now's now not quite the right time, we can do it next year, we can do it the year, kind of like doing your homework, you know? <laughs> you don't quite have the first urgency of now when you're doing your homework. I mean, I never did. But that's what MLK was talking about. It's kind of like, do you want to get going on this march? The fierce urgency of now, you're called. But he talked about that, and it's so important because it's so easy to say, oh, we'll get to it next time. We'll get to it after this TV show. We'll get to it after I talk on the phone or text or write my speech for MLK. <laughs> but it's so important that he stuck with that, the fierce urgency of now, and really the ultimate culmination of him getting that point across is the presidency of Barack Obama. That's so powerful. Welcome to the Upper West Side. I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say today. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Our first speaker this morning is Kenji Williams. So let's give Kenji a big round of applause. Jim Crow and slavery were caste systems. So is our current system of mass incarceration. Those are the words of professor and author Michelle Alexander in her critically acclaimed book, The New Jim Crow. When I first read these words, my eyes widened with great surprise. I had never heard such a comparison, 
and was immediately intrigued by the certainty and confidence of Alexandra's statement. Alexandra defines caste as a stigmatized racial group locked into an inferior position by law and custom. The errors of American slavery and Jim Crow laws clearly fit into her definition, but it is less apparent why mass incarceration is a racial caste system. However, Alexandra's thesis soon became lucid to me. Unnecessary policies such as stop and frisk, zero tolerance policies in inner city schools, as well as the absurd racial disparity in drug arrest, despite the fact that both blacks and whites commit drug-related crimes at very similar rates, all lead to one oppressive system. This oppressive system is reserved for people convicted as, of crimes who are branded as felons. These felons cannot vote and are victims of employment, housing, and education discrimination, not unlike the era of Jim Crow. Alexandra writes, quote, as a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. A recent report from the Sentencing Project sheds some more light on the topic. They conclude disparities in police stops, in prosecutorial charging, and in bail and sentencing decisions reveal that implicit racial bias has penetrated all corners of the criminal justice system. Not only is this an injustice in itself, but the misconceptions this injustice leads to can be lethal as well. In a 2010 survey, the white people questioned overestimated the percentage of burglaries, illegal drug sales, and juvenile crime committed by African Americans by approximately 25%. According to the study, many media outlets reinforce racial misconceptions about crime by presenting African Americans and Latinos differently than whites, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Television news programs and newspapers overrepresent racial minorities as crime suspects and whites as crime victims. This overrepresentation has an effect as well, according to attorney Lisa Bloom. She writes in her book, Suspicion Nation, that while whites can and do commit a great deal of minor and major crimes, the race as a whole is never tainted by those acts. But when blacks violate the law, all members of the race are considered suspect. The standard assumption that criminals are black and blacks are criminals is so prevalent that in one study, 60% of viewers who viewed a crime study with no picture of the perpetrator falsely recalled seeing one. And of those, 70% believed he was African American. When we think about crime, we see black, even when it's not present at all. These unjust assumptions that portray blacks as miscreants are the result of the biased criminal justice system, as well as the unequal representation of criminals in the media, and they need to be stopped. With the claim, we have not ended racial caste in America, we have merely redesigned it, Michelle Alexander sheds light on the fact that the efforts of the American government to figuratively and literally imprison its African-American citizens have never completely stopped. The methods of doing so have just shifted. Mass incarceration and the denial of rights to people labeled as criminals is the newest iteration of those efforts. Manhattan Country School had a purpose when it was founded, to provide education to those whose education rights were denied by law. At the time, it was founded in 1966, even after Brown versus Board of Education, socioeconomic differences and a lack of acceptance for integrated schools kept education segregated and created poor conditions for black schools. Today, the quality of education for young people who have been jailed is also substandard. As MCS transitions into a new era and a new building, my hope is that the people in this community continue to fight for those who have had their rights denied by the cycle of black imprisonment.
First it was slavery, then it was Jim Crow laws, and now it is mass incarceration and the misconceptions that stem from it. Ajani's next. Promised false riches by her future exploiters. In 1810, 20-year-old Koi woman Sarah Bartman left her life as a servant in Cape Town and was brought to London, unaware of the life that awaited her. Once she arrived, she was put on display in freak shows across Europe due to their fascination with her large hips and bottom. Among her European audience, she was known as the hot and tot Venus. Hot and tot, a slur for coy people, and Venus, a reference to the Roman goddess of love. She was forced to entertain the viewers with a dehumanizing performance in which she would dance and play the role of an animal, all done while barely clothed. At the end of the show, people were encouraged to poke her with their fingers and sticks. Her figure was alluring to the European public and seen as primitive and bizarre. Whenever they wished, they could witness the oddity that was Sarah Bartman. Her body was gawked at with the belief that her humanity was questionable and her morals and intellect substandard to their own. In 1815, after five years of being the most talked about woman in Europe, 25-year-old Sarah Bartman died in Paris. Without her prior consent, her dead body was dissected and pieces of her put in jars and sent to museums, not to be taken down for over a century. Reporter Zeba Blaze stated in the Huffington Post, Black female bodies have long been sites of trauma, carrying not only the weight of the past, but present stereotypes that dehumanize and sexualize young girls before they even hit puberty. Such dehumanization is sustained by degrading stereotypes in the media through lack of diverse representation of black women and girls. The perception of, of the black woman's body and sexuality as promiscuous or exotic sustains the assumption that black women are consenting participants in their own objectification. The stereotypes that deem black women as defiant, angry, loud, or aggressive act to marginalize black women's intelligence, complexity, and respectability, and present a less civilized contrast to the white woman. Many would consider Serena Williams to be one of the greatest tennis players of her time, yet throughout her career, she has faced an outstanding amount of racist and sexist backlash for being a black woman in a sport dominated by white women, and even more for playing better than most of her white competitors. She's often compared to animals and is only recognized for her physical appearance or ability instead of the mental dedication it takes to achieve such excellence. When Serena expresses frustration with, with the racially charged criticism she receives, she is automatically labeled as an angry black woman and is disregarded. In both instances, the humanity of black women is erased and made to be illegitimate. The archetypes that often stifle black women's expression of all emotions, including anger, confine them to a single story of black womanhood. Such controlled perception of black women takes away ownership over their bodies, reducing them to objects. The overtly racist objectification and dehumanization of black women leads to higher rates of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Approximately 40% of black women report coercive contact of a se sexual nature by the age of 18. This is partly due to stereotypes about black women's sexuality and the effect they have of normalizing violence among black women and girls. Stereotypes that present black women as animalistic, hypersexual, and unruly result in the public blaming victims for the violence inflicted upon them. This is exemplified in recent cases of police brutality among black girls. A 16-year-old Spring Valley High School student was violently removed from her chair during her math class for supposedly disrupting the group. The officer put his arm around her neck, then attempted to pull her out of the chair. Her desk crashed to the ground and he continued to drag her. A similar incident occurred this summer to a girl close to my age. In just her bikini, she was slammed to the ground and pinned by a male officer after trying to go for a swim with her friends. Huffington Post's Zeba Blay commented on the treatment of this 15-year-old. 
Casebolt, the officer, did not think he was restraining a helpless teenage girl, but a black woman with all the stereotypes and stigma that includes. This, it seems, was justification enough for her treatment. When people questioned what the two girls did to deserve this instead of why the police would assault such young people, they are actively excusing the inhumane treatment of these children. Today we stand in front of the future home of Manhattan Country School, in front of the building that many of the children in this audience will grow up in, as I have grown in our current home on 96th Street. They will learn to speak up and think analytically and question everything as I have. After I graduate and MCS moves here, I hope it teaches Sarah Bartman's story. I hope it reveals the history that has built our present. After I graduate, I hope MCS continues to be a community where women of color feel free to explore their identities and be more than their misconceptions. Thank you, Johnny. So before we have our next speaker, we're going to have a quick word from um, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer. Thank you very much, MCS, and thank you for having this march to celebrate Dr. King year after year. I think you're the only school in the whole city of New York who has done this. But I will tell you that it's special that you're moving into this building. I have been to hundreds of concerts at the Manor School of Music, which is what you're moving into. It wasn't a condo, thank goodness. And you're going to be very special because Brandeis High School is four schools. It's down the block. They do a lot of good things, and hopefully you'll be able to do things with them because that's what MCS is all about. So it's a very special MLK Day, I think, this year in particular. It's the end of President Obama's term. He gave a wonderful speech. I think now he can say the hell with it. I'm going to say whatever I want. And it makes a big difference because that's the kind of person we need to be to say things that are on our mind. And secondly, as was referenced by the wonderful student speakers, the fact of the matter is the police departments around the country have been outed, so to speak. They have now been told, and the public understands, that they have to change their tactics. It's happening in New York. It's very slow. There's an older way of doing things that is not the right way, and it takes time. We have been to the trainings. We listened to the discussions. In our office, we've had many dialogues at roundtables with police and young people. It takes a very long time. And the third thing that's happened in this MLK Day is you see the true colors of some of the people, you hear about it from the Republicans, but it's not just them. And we see the real color of some of the people in this country, and it's very, very discouraging. So we have so many things to celebrate, but I think it's abundantly clear when you hear the students speak, and when you think about what we face this year, to me, it's clearer than ever, the issues of race and police and community and what it takes to make a difference and what the stakes are that are very much evident. Listening to the debates, not people I know around the country who have uh, the anti-Muslim, anti-African-American, anti-Latino, anti-immigrant, anti-Asian. It's very, very prevalent in this country. Being here today with you, being a New Yorker, with values, may I add, makes a big difference in terms of why and how we celebrate this day. So congratulations to the eighth graders, the parents, the students, the administration, and welcome to the West Side. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Jacques is speaking next. When people hear the word illegal, they think of a criminal. They think of someone who is breaking the law, someone who deserves punishment. But can you call an innocent child who is brought here by his parents in hopes of getting a better life a criminal? 
What about someone who has grown up as an American only to find out that the country that they have lived in their entire lives, the only home they've ever known, wants them to leave? Illegal is what these innocent children are often called. The word illegal originally referred to actions and objects, not people. However, in the last few years, the word has been politicized to turn a diverse and talented group of people into one monster. A monster that is supposedly stealing our jobs and depleting our resources. Calling someone an illegal allows you to excuse the fact that they are human and everything about them is reduced to a single problem. They are marginalized, stereotyped, and live in constant fear of losing their home. Misconceptions surrounding immigration have plagued the millions of people who have come here in hopes of a better and safer life. A boy named Pedro shared his story with the American Psychological Association. He explained that his family brought him over to the U.S. when he was only four years old. He grew up living his life, going to school, and making friends. Pedro was an American. He aspired to become a Supreme Court Justice and always knew he wanted to go to college. The first time he heard the term undocumented was when his older brother told him of their family status. He was in the second grade and didn't fully understand what it meant, but would later learn that undocumented meant that he could never obtain a driver's license, couldn't get a job, and had to live in constant fear of immigration raids. For him, even the smallest of offenses could translate to immediate deportation. Pedro eventually got detained at a police station for 24 hours after admitting to being undocumented when he was randomly asked by a police officer. He was lucky enough to have been let go, but the same cannot be said for the hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants who get deported every year. Take the story of Nancy Landa, for example. She came to the U.S. as a young child and eventually graduated from Cal State University with a degree in business administration. Five years later, Nancy had built a life for herself. She had a stable job, and her two children who were born here were both citizens. Then, on September 29, 2009, Nancy was abruptly stopped by two immigration officials and taken to a detention center. Not long after, Nancy was deported and her two children were left in foster care. She described her situation saying, I knew in that moment that what I had built in the United States, my entire life, was over. But why are the first images that come to mind when people hear immigrant, that of criminals here to exploit our social services? Where do these misconceptions come from? How can a nation be built on immigrants and still fear immigrants? An article written by journalist Ira Chernes said, It is a symptom of a chronic underlying disease in American culture, the growing fear that the familiar borders and boundaries that give life its secure structure are breaking down. For Americans, there is a growing fear that their borders are unsafe, which translates to a feeling of us versus them. But even more, there is a feeling of fear and a feeling of superiority. People assume just by the fact that they aren't quote-unquote illegals that they are better, more pure. They believe that because they were born here and their parents were born here, they are the only true Americans. This aversion to people of undocumented status was highlighted in a recent New York Times and CBS News poll where they found that 78% of people are opposed to quote-unquote illegal immigration and wish to strengthen our borders, while only 27% of people are opposed to immigration in general. Many people also believe that immigration from Mexico is at an all-time high, while in fact it is at an all-time low, with more people leaving the U.S. every year than coming. The peak of Mexican immigration was back in 2013, with 6.9 million immigrants living in the U.S. from Mexico. 
The number dropped to 5.6 million by 2014 and has been in a steady decline since then. We stand here today in front of a building that in just eight short months shall be the new home of MCS. Since it was founded, MCS has stood for equality and justice, which is why every year we have a march in protest of the wrongs in our world, and why the fifth floor chooses an activism topic each year. While this year's topic is focusing on a different type of immigrant, Syrian refugees, the message is still the same. We need to accept people who are fleeing terror and looking for a better life, and we can't call them illegal for coming here. Next we have Liam as our next speaker. On September 11, 2001, two planes flew into the Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan in a coordinated terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda-affiliated suicide bombers. On September 11, 2001, the world became a very different place. There were 2,753 people killed at the World Trade Center on that day, including my grandmother, Anne McGovern, who worked at Aon Bank on the 93rd floor of the South Tower. She was an athlete, a humorous person, and a loving one. She was the first person in her family to go to college and graduated from Hunter with a master's degree in English literature. But to the media, she was aware when and how, and her death is used as justification for war in Iraq and Afghanistan and arguably against Muslims worldwide. My grandmother Anne was an activist, a feminist, and a pacifist who would never stand for the atrocities supposedly committed in her name. 9-11 unleashed an era in which governments freely exploited and continue to exploit victims of terrorism to justify their own agendas. There have been an estimated 210,000 civilian deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan combined as a result of wars waged there. And for what? The recent Paris attacks led to the closing of many borders to civilians trying to escape violence in their home countries. Ironically but sadly, most of these people flee the same violence they are accused of committing. They flee places where the attacks like the ones in Paris and Beirut occur on a daily basis, and yet countries like the U.S. and France are so relentless in their persecution that these people are denied entrance to supposedly free lands. President Hollande of France immediately closed the borders following the attacks, even though it is unclear that the attacks were connected to recent immigration. Many of the victims of the attacks were recent immigrants from war-torn areas. Our governments claim to persecute Muslims in the name of democracy and in honor of those who have been killed by terrorists, yet thousands of people have been denied the right to live without fear. These people have been denied the very freedoms that democracy guarantees. The irony is that many of the world's refugees, and particularly those from Syria, are running away from the very same fundamentalist ideology behind attacks on the World Trade Center, Paris, Beirut, and entire areas of Syria. Like my grandmother, civilians killed or targeted in Paris, Beirut, or Syria are simply trying to live free lives, to work, to love. I know from my family that many of the U.S. government's reactions to 9-11 were not things my grandmother or family would have supported. Similarly, the governments of Paris or Lebanon do not necessarily act at the bequest of victims. I read recently of an activist who was killed by ISIS in Raqqa, Syria. Rakia Hassan was 30, and she was one of a number of activists trying to let people know about the harsh realities she faced. She fought for a free and democratic Syria, and for that, ISIS wanted her dead. She wrote of civilians caught between coalition bombings from the U.S. and France, and ISIS tyranny. Despite being in different parts of the world, both Rakia and my grandmother lived according to their values of peace and justice, and yet their legacies have been used to justify a war on Islam. I knew my grandmother for a total of seven weeks. She held me just moments after my birth. And while I was too young to remember her, to remember that short time, I'm connected to my grandmother through her sense of humor, although sometimes inappropriate, <laughs> and through her love of life. Sometimes I think about how different my life would be were she alive. 
I'm also connected to her through the pain her death caused and through the injustices she has faced in death. I know she would have admired Rukia Hassan and would have been enraged by her death. I never forget that men and women responsible for all of the death and destruction who claim it is in the name of fighting terrorism or in the name of a certain god don't have very much in common with my grandmother at all. Anne McGovern opposed all of the things that war and identity-based violence represents, and as did many victims of attacks like 9-11. But as we stand here in front of the future of MCS, I feel hopeful. As Dr. Martin Luther King once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And MCS inspires the same justice and activism fueled by love that Dr. Martin Luther King once spoke of. Thank you, Liam. So thank you for marching with us. We're going to march to the park and then we're going to walk up to 110th Street. Um, one big part of the, of the marches that's really important is singing. We have songbooks. Maya Jackson has 100 songbooks. If a 7th or 8th grader would like to lead the singing, it's really important that we march together, that we sing together. So please sing with us and march with us and thank you all for coming. I am Ajani Nazario and I'm an 8th grader at Manhattan Country School. Well, um, my speech was about how black women are over-sexualized and how that um, over-sexualized and dehumanized and how that leads to more physical, emotional and sexual abuse towards them. I came up with this idea after watching an episode of Melissa Harris Perry with my mom when they started talking about the hot and Todd Venus and um, I don't know, kind of just came to me the connection that had with current issues today among black women and um, that's how I came up with the idea. I think it's very powerful that a lot of young people are coming together and um, marching and remembering the legacy and dream of Dr. Martin Luther King when most children are sitting at home probably on their phones or whatever. Our final speaker of the day is Cal. Every day Tremendous anguish and grief is inflicted upon countless communities across the country. Even those not affected by it are understandably worried that the same horror will suddenly be imposed upon them. This pain is the result of mass shootings in America. These mass shootings are no longer isolated events. No, these events have become all too common. San Bernardino, Paris, Roseburg, the list goes on and on. But we must understand that these shootings are not inevitable. There are steps that we can all take to ensure a safer future for everyone. Hi, my name is Sky Jenna Tarshis. I wrote about transgender youth and all of the many misconceptions that surround them and how that causes them to become depressed or suicidal. Um, I wrote about the speech because many of my close friends are transgender and are misunderstood by parents or other friends and I felt that this is a very prevalent issue and I really wanted to speak about it. And what did it feel like, Sky, to be on the street sharing this speech with us? It was very nice to be speaking in front of so many people. I felt that it had a lot to do with Dr. King's legacy of speaking speaking up for your rights and other people's rights. And it was a very great experience and I would definitely do something like that again. Hi, I'm Debbie Bernhound, the mother of Sky Tarshis, who spoke today about transgender rights. I'm very proud of her and all the other students who are so civic-minded and have so much social justice in their hearts from such a wonderful institution as this school. It's just more than I would have ever imagined I could ever experience as a child. 
because I had nothing like this. Liam McGovern Hunko. What did it feel like to be on the streets of New York City sharing this speech with us? Well, it's very empowering. Um, I think the street is sort of a place where it's very uh, lonely place in a way. We use it to get from place to place. You're in your own phone, you're listening to music, whatever. Um, but when you, it's very empowering, I think, to take it over and to um, use it as a, as an outlet as a way to express your beliefs and to stand up for what you believe in. So it was, it was an empowering experience. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. Hi, I'm Greg Triggs from Travels with Triggs. And if you're like me, always on the move, then you have to get the WJFF app for your mobile device. The WJFF app is available from your Apple or Android app store, and it's the best way to keep your community radio station with you no matter what community you find yourself in anywhere in the world. So if you don't have the WJFF mobile app, get it now and take us with you wherever you go. WJFF, Jeffersonville, New York, W233AH, Monticello. TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Anant Gerdadas, Should Billionaires Exist? Are billionaires such as Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates the American dream personified? Do they reflect a healthy economy? Or, as Senator Bernie Sanders has said,